And welcome to the Dragon Missile from 88 Films. I'll be your host. My name is David West. I'm a movie critic for Neo Magazine and the author of Chasing Dragons, an introduction to the martial arts film, which is a not completely terrible book about kung fu movies and samurai films. Today we're watching The Dragon Missile from 1976, directed by Ho Men Hua, which was a Shaw Brothers production, as you obviously just saw with the iconic Shaw Brothers logo at the top there. This film was kind of rushed into production in some respects. Shaw Brothers had already enjoyed some success at the box office with The Flying Guillotine, which was released in Hong Kong in February of 1975. And then uh, Jimmy Wang Yu, who was of course the star of Shaw Brothers' iconic The One-Armed Swordsman film, had since gone solo and set up his own film company. And he went into production with a movie called The One-Armed Boxer versus The Flying Guillotine, which was essentially a knockoff of The Flying Guillotine that added Wang Yu's own signature shtick of having a one-armed hero to the mix. So not to be outdone, Shaw Brothers got Ho Meng Hua to jump into production on The Dragon Missile, to compete directly with Wang Yu's knockoff of the Flying Guillotine. And, and it was direct competition. Both films opened on the same day, the 24th of April, 1976. Uh, the Dragon Missile benefits from having Shaw's clout behind it. Even if it was sort of quickly rushed into production, it has Shaw's uh, signature production values with you know, excellent costumes, lavish sets, uh, a large cast, and a script, as we just saw in the credits there, by Ni Quang. Ni Quang was, I think, the most prolific writer at Shaw Brothers, well, indeed in Hong Kong cinema at this period in, in the 1970s. He, uh, Shaw's at this point was making something like up to 30 kung fu movies a year, and Ni Quang wrote most of them. Uh, he was born in Shanghai in 1935, moved to Hong Kong in the 1960s, writing for newspapers and novels. Um, and some of his novels were filmed, including The, the Six-Fingered Lord of the Loot, The Violet Mansion, and the dark heroine Mulan Hua. Uh, he moved into cinema with The One-Armed Swordsman, which was his first script that he wrote directly for a film rather than one of his novels being filmed. Uh, which was for obviously director Chang Che. Uh, here we get, introduce the uh, evil lord who's behind all the malice in this film, played by Ko Feng, who's a prolific character actor as well. Throughout this film, you'll see people uh, who ha have credits in literally hundreds of movies. They were character actors at Shaw Brothers who would just pop up again and again and again. Ko uh, Feng, playing the evil. Lord Jin here was in roughly a hundred films for Shaw Brothers after joining them in 1965. Uh, we can tell he's rich for a start because he's got that fancy jade piece on his little headscarf there. Uh, his illness is described in the uh, English dub as skin cancer. It's got a much more exotic description in the Chinese. He's got a, he's got a type of evil boil called 100 Birds Worshipping the Phoenix which sounds pretty gross. Uh, Lo Lei is our anti-hero. It's, indeed, it's, it's not even quite an anti-hero. Lo Lei's character in this is 
is a villain, but it's interesting that the film, the film's protagonist is the villain. There's no pretense that uh, Lole's character can be redeemed here, or that he's on some sort of journey from villainy to heroism, like the the protagonist of the Flying Guillotine. Uh, Lole's character starts as a villain and ends as a villain. Mentioned earlier, the screenwriter Ni Kuang. Some of his key films would include Golden Swallow, which was the sequel, the sequel to King Hu's Come Drink with Me, but had um, Chang Che as director. Also for Chang Che, he wrote Vengeance uh, and The Boxer from Shantun, which is one of the bloodiest kung fu movies you'll ever see, as well as The Blood, the Blood Brothers. Uh, he also worked for uh, Lao Galen, writing the scripts for The Spiritual Boxer, Challenge of the Masters, Executioners from Shaolin. The, 30, the 36th Chamber of Shaolin and Dirty Ho, and also he freelanced outside of Shaw Brothers as well, He's, where he, uh, he wrote The Big Boss and Fist of Fury for Golden Harvest, which of course the films that made Bruce Lee a star. Uh, we've got another character actor popping up here as the Imperial Doctor. This is Hao Li Chen, uh, who had over 200 movie credits to his name, covering the period from 1957 to 1981. Here he plays the Imperial Doctor who's abducted and forced to come and tend to the ailing Lord Chin. There's a great line here where the Lord Chin's wife says to the Doctor, what do you think it is? And he ought to reply, I think you better, I think you better wash your hands to touch in that. You suspect that uh, Hao Li Chen was born an old man. His entire career seems to have been spent playing grandfathers and, and wise old doctors. He was definitely a role he specialized in. He was even in Enter the Dragon, of course, uh, where he tells uh, Bruce Lee's character about the unhappy fate of his sister, played by Angela Mao. However, uh, in this film, it's Hao Li Chen who's going to meet an unhappy fate. Um, unfortunately for him, as Lord Jin is such a scoundrel. You can already get a sense of the scale that Shaw Brothers was able to bring, even to a production like this, which was sort of hurriedly brought to life just with the number of extras, the exquisite costumes the actresses are wearing in, in this scene. Uh, the sort of, their the rivals, for want of a better word, working in Taiwan, really couldn't quite compete with, with the scope that Shaw Brothers could bring even to a modest production like this one. When you see a lot of Kung Fu movies from Taiwan at this, at this period, they often rely on scenes being set outdoors, which saved them on having to use lights, uh, and obviously they didn't have to worry about building sets as well, so they could get by with minimal props and minimal equipment if they just had everything happen outdoors. There are obviously a lot of scenes in this movie that take place outdoors, but you suspect that's not necessarily driven by budget, as we'll get some scenes later on that take place on the shores a lot, and there are some interesting sets and also people riding horses coming up, which again you couldn't really afford to do if you were a small independent filmmaker.
So at this point in the film, the uh, the good Imperial Doctor introduces what might be called the MacGuffin of this of the plot, which is this medicine that is the only thing that can cure Lord Chin of his boils and or skin cancer. And that really is sort of the impetus for the whole plot, really going to get this medicine. It's not really about whether or not he gets the medicine in a sense. That's just an excuse to have a bit of an adventure. The MacGuffin concept was sort of popularized by the filmmaker Alfred Hitchcock, but you do see it in kung fu movies. There are innumerable kung fu movies in which somebody is on a quest to recover a stolen kung fu manual, uh, and that's it's, you know, the manual itself isn't really important, or what's in the manual isn't important. It's the fact that it then sets up a mission for the hero to undertake and brings him into conflict with whoever has stolen the manual. In this movie, though, we don't have a manual to rest, to go and recover. It's about getting the medicine to cure the Lord. It's a strangely amoral movie in some respects because we have Lord Jin. He's clearly a very cruel and capricious man. And uh, Lole's character, Sima Jun, is obviously totally amoral. He, he, does, you know, he kills whoever his boss tells him to, which is not something that we tend to see a lot in the protagonists, uh, protagonists of classic kung fu movies. Usually if they're Shaolin heroes, they're terribly upstanding um, and embody Chinese nobility in the face of the Manchurian invasion. But in this case, there's no angle like that. He's very much uh, uh, the villain of, of the story, and it's quite a long time before we meet anybody in the film who could qualify as a hero. We'll get to them in due course. So we're coming up to ten minutes into the movie now, and we finally get our first decapitation. In, in this regard, it's a it's a slower experience than the flying guillotine, which is just full of endless heads being chopped off. There aren't actually that many decapitations in this film, though they are great when they come. It's oddly bloodless when somebody gets their head lopped off here. It's not like Chambara films from Japan uh, of this period, or even like a bloody kung fu movie like The Boxer from Shantung. We just saw a man lose his head there, and there's nary a drop of blood in sight. Um, which it's, it's kind of unusual for shorts, which were kind of notorious for their brightly colored, palpably fake blood that splattered everywhere in their films, particularly Chang Chair's film, every time someone gets disemboweled and has to bind up their stomach to stop their guts from falling out. It's nice how everyone suddenly turns squeamish here that he's chopped off the imperial physician's noggin. I guess that tells us a lot about presumably how powerful Lord Jin is meant to be, that he can risk the Emperor's wrath by having his personal doctor bumped off so unceremoniously. Uh, Lole's character is wearing white. Now, of course, in westerns, the hero would be the guy in white, and the villain would typically be the man in black. Uh, that's not the case in Hong Kong kung fu cinema, uh, largely because of the cultural connotation of white being the color worn to funerals in traditional Chinese culture. So, having Lole's character Sima Jun dressed head to toe in white instantly sort of gives him an aura of, of death, if you like, because that's the color worn to a funeral. 
if he was wearing black, he could easily be one of the good guys. Uh, you can see this a lot. Lole often was, would be dressed head to toe in white, when he, particularly when he was playing the white eyebrow monk Pak Mei, or Pak Mei, as it's sometimes translated into English, which he did in several films like Executionist from Shaolin, Falao Ga Leung, and his own uh, film, uh, The Fist of the White Lotus. also known as Clan of the White Lotus, which stars Lo Lei and Lao Gao Fai. Uh, in those films, Lo would not, would not only typically be dressed head to toe in white, but would also have a white wig and a big white bushy beard and white eyebrows. Uh, this comes from the sort of semi-historical, semi-mythical figure of Bak Mei, who was a monk who fought against the noble heroes of Shaolin. He was a villain. Now we're being introduced to six characters at once in short succession here. Uh, these are going to form uh, another layer to this uh, collection. Again, there's this sort of amorality at work. These are going to be key characters, but they're going to be pitted against Lole's character, even though these clearly aren't good people themselves. These are killers for hire, um, in essence. Um, a lot of these people, again, these are regular character actors from Shaw Brothers Cinema, on indeed Hong Kong Cinema. We got Fan Fan Mei Sheng there with the big beard, who uh, was in something like 250 odd movies. He's still alive now. He's the father of Fan Su Wong, who you may recognize from well either uh, the first Ip Man movie with Donnie Yen, or the notorious Ricky O, the story of Ricky which almost uh, sunk his career. But Fan Meisheng was a regular heavy in Hong Kong cinema, particularly in the 1970s. Yeah, uh, if you needed a bad guy, you know, he was one of the guys you'd call. He was uh, very good in The Young Master, where he has a bit of a tangle with Jackie Chan. He's perhaps somewhat a broad actor, but then this is Shaw Brothers, so broad performances are very much the order of the day. A lot of big gestures. Uh, also in the lineup here, who else have we got? We've got Norman Norman Choi, Choi Su Kung, who is on the left as you look at the screen, the far left. Uh, he went on to do lots of great movies. This is very uh, quite early in his career. Choi Su Kung had already worked with Ho Meng Hua on films like um, Black Magic. And he'd worked with him again on uh, The Mighty Peking Man, which is uh, Hong Kong's answer to King Kong in 1977. Uh, he, he had a very long career. I think he may even still be active today. Uh, he was in um, Swordmaster, which was a 3D uh, swordplay movie that came out in Hong Kong in 2016 from Derek Yi. That in turn was a, a remake of a film uh, that Derek Yee starred in from 1977 by uh, Choi Yun called Death Duel, uh, which Choi Su Kang also appeared in. My personal favorite performance by Choi Su Kang would still be as uh, the samurai Hashimoto in Ching Shi Chung's Duel to the Death from 1983. Anyway, now everybody's out and about riding on horses and. Uh, Shop of this getting to show off.
that they've got enough money to do a little location shooting and get some people on horseback. There's uh, one lady in this group, which is uh, Miss Shaw, who's played by the actress Nancy, Nancy, uh, sorry, not Nancy, uh, Terry Lau, Lau Yu. Uh, adds a bit of an extra dimension to the thing, so it's not just a boys club. Chang Chia's films were notorious for being dominated by all-male cast, so with a few notable exceptions, like the Brave Archer movies. Anyway, we're going to see a lot more of Terry Lau later on. Now we've got another veteran character actor popping up here as the herbalist. This is uh, Yang Chi Hung. He has almost 300 movie appearances uh, to his credit, beginning in 1941 when he would, was working in Shanghai at, uh, at the Yi Hua Studio and at uh, uh, Shanglian Studio. Uh, he joined the Cathay Film Company in 1947 and then moved to Hong Kong in the 1950s where he joined Shaw Brothers and, and spent decades there as a character actor. Here he is, the wise old herbalist with his, and we, now we got our first look at the MacGuffin of the story, which is this rather unprepossessing looking root, I suppose, that's going to save Lord Chin's life. Boop. There's uh, Mu Fei, a character played by Fan Mei Sheng, just put his foot in his mouth. And now we're going to get the first burst of Kung Fu in the movie. Now, the action choreographers on this film are uh, Tong Kai and Yun Chun Yan. Uh, Tong Kai was. Um, Born into the movie business by uh, his Sifu, who was Yun Xiutian, who was the father of Yun Chengyan and the rest of the Yun clan. So there's a direct connection between the two of them. Uh, Yun Xiutian was a uh, Peking opera performer before coming into the movie business. Uh, and uh, likewise, Tong Kai, his student, came from an opera background, and Yun Xiutian trained him in op opera performance. So the action choreography in this film uh, owes quite a debt to the Peking Opera Northern style. Uh, it's a lot of uh, big movement. It's very different from what, for example, Bruce Lee had done just a few years before. Here it's all quite theatrical, large gestures that are very easily communicated to the audience and are pleasing to the eye. It, I mean, it's not particularly based on any sort of concept of actual combat unlike, say, some of Bruce Lee's choreography. This is very much choreography as a piece of performance, which again reflects that opera tradition. Um, Tong Kai uh, is, I guess, best known for his long collaboration with uh, Lao Ga Leung when they both came up at Shaw Brothers as young action choreographers, martial arts directors working for Chang Che. Oop, there's our second decapitation of the movie. Just gone by there. Still bloodless. Nary a drop spilled. Uh, when Lao Ga Leung broke away to become uh, a director in his own right with the spiritual boxer, Tong Kai continued as an action choreographer. Uh, it's interesting to, to find him here working with uh, one of the Yun clan uh, 
tend to think of uh, what Lao Galung's work at Shaw Brothers is being dominated by southern, southern fish, the Hung Kyun, the, the Hung style, which was Lao Galung's speciality. Uh, whereas Tong Kai uh, obviously has that northern Peking opera background. Anyway, now we've got uh, we've got the MacGuffin. We've got the magic herb that's going to fix Lord Chin. So it's back on the horseback. And finally, here we go. Twenty minutes into the movie, we get our first a good guy. <laughs> Here's uh, Nancy Yen as uh, Tan Su Li. It's interesting that so many of the characters are introduced with on-screen titles. I guess that's a sort of shorthand when you've got a lot of characters to keep track of. If you slap on an on-screen title, it saves the director and the screenwriter having to worry too much about explaining who everybody is. So um, uh, Nancy Yen's character at the moment, she looks sort of like a sort of ordinary girl, but when she sets out on the path of vengeance, her appearance is going to change, and she's going to look an awful lot like uh, Golden Swallow, Cheng Pei Pei's character from Come Drink With Me. But we'll, we'll see more of her a bit later on. Now we get another little quick burst of martial arts action as an angry Sima Chun puts a beating in, and we get our second good guy. With the first appearance on screen of Tony Liu, or, or Lao Wing. Now, he's probably going to be recognizable to anybody who's seen any of Bruce Lee's films. Uh, uh, Lao Wing got his start, really, at Golden Harvest. He had, um, he was the son of the big boss in, in The Big Boss. Uh, he was in, um, he was one of the waiters at the restaurant in, um, the Way of the Dragon, and he was one of the, the tournament competitors in Enter the Dragon, uh, in which he fights uh, Roper, the character played by John Saxon. Uh, Lao Wing never sort of became a, a, a big star like Bruce Lee or, or Jackie Chan, but he, he's had a pretty admirable career in, in Hong Kong cinema. He's still active now. In 2016, he w had a role in the action thriller Mrs. K, starring uh, Kao Rawai, or, or Wai Ying Hung, another 1970s kung fu movie veteran who's still going strong now. So we'll see a lot more of, of Lao Wing's character very shortly. It's another common plot device in kung fu movies to have the hero uh, and his uh, nemesis or antagonist share the same kung fu master and there are references to that in, in the English dub here um, that's how Sima Jun knows to go looking for uh, Lao Wing's character, Tony Liu's character Chia Erlong because he recognized his martial arts style uh, another example here of Shaw Brothers uh, budgetary prowess with this lovely set of the watermill. And we're also going to meet uh, uh, Yang Shafei, who's going to play um, Erlong's mother. Uh, there's an, she's again one of these character actors that just pops up over and over again. She's got over 250 movie credits. 
she was born in 1924, died in uh, 2010, so she would have been in her early 50s around the time this film was made. She'll be appearing shortly. Oh, here comes uh, Tony Liu, our clean-cut hero. It's interesting that the film doesn't really spend a lot of time on his character. I mean, he sort of needs somebody to be the good guy, to uphold law and order in the face of all the wrongdoing committed by Sima Jin and on Lord Jin's orders. So we get this clean-cut, handsome heroine, handsome hero, excuse me, here, played by Tony Liu. But we really know almost nothing about him. Oh, now here we get Ouyang Shafei, who plays uh, the hero's mom. As anybody who's ever seen a Kung Fu movie know, knows, uh, the uh, last thing you want to do is kill somebody's uh, family member or, or their sifu. Um, you know, that's a, that's a rookie mistake. You don't want to be doing that because it's all going to kick off then. So let's see how Sima Chun behaves now that he's accepted hospitality from uh, Erlong and his lovely old lady mom here. Played by Ouyang Shafei. Funnily enough, uh, uh, Ouyang Shafei would go on to star, uh, have a leading role in The Fatal Flying Guillotines, which came out the following year, 1977, directed by uh, Raymond Liu, which was yet another knockoff uh, of the original Flying Guillotine, with more flying weapons that chop people's heads off. So there was, def there was definitely a sort of glut of these movies around this time. There was there's some sort of literary precedent for the idea of a sort of airborne weapon. You can find old swordsman novels like um, Legend of the Strange Hero, which was published in 1928, which describes you know heroes who can control flying daggers. Though in those in the novels, the flying daggers always have a sort of uh, semi-mystical, magical element about them. They're either controlled through like some sort of magical power or, or through like chi. Whereas in this film it's much more uh, prosaic. There's no sense that um, Sima Chun is controlling his dragon missiles through any sort of magical special ability. They're just the best weapons of the day and he's the guy who's got them and knows how to use them. These weapons of mass decapitation to coin a phrase. Um, but that tradition of flying daggers really has a long lineage throughout uh, Chinese literature and, and cinema. You can find it in uh, one of the very first martial arts films, The Burning of the Red Lotus Monastery, which was first filmed, I think, in 1928. And then, of course, you can find much more recent examples of, of that with, like, House of Flying Daggers or... The Flying Swords of Dragon Gate by uh, Choi Hark, in which people uh, sometimes the, the hero flies whilst holding a sword, versus having a weapon that flies through the air. But it varies from film to film. And, and obviously, in this movie, they're sort of magical, super sharp boomerangs, as wielded by Sima Chun, versus the sort of deadly hat of the Flying Guillotine. See, we can see here that Ouyang Sha Fei's character, uh, Long's mother here, 
may be blind, but she knows he's up to no good. She's got a bit of a of a daredevil thing kind of going on here, I feel. There's a certain shorthand in some of these films. One of the ways you can tell heroes from villains, of course, is that heroes are, have this Confucian uh, sense of, of uh, hierarchy, for want of a better word, uh, and uh, propriety that uh, Erlang is devoted to his mother and takes care of her, and he's you know polite and all this kind of stuff. Whereas Sima Chen is completely ruthless and has no respect for his elders, as we're about to find out in unpleasant fashion. But obviously it's a bit contrived that Erlong leaves his mother unattended here to go off and search for Sima Chun, who's stayed behind. Uh, it, is, it is perhaps fair to say that Ni Kuang would have been churning out these scripts at a rate of knots. He, there were more than 20 films released in 1976 with scripts by Ni Kuang. Now, he may not have written them all in that year, but that's you know an extraordinary work, work rate. Uh, Included uh, films like um, Shaolin Temple, New Shaolin Boxes, um, The Black Magic Part Two, and of course The Dragon Missile, oh, the, the Himalayan, which is a great movie with Mao Ying and Sammo Hung. Uh, he was just mad prolific. Uh, now we get a case of um, the stunt double coming into play for Ouyang Shafei. I mean, it's fair enough, really. If I was in my early 50s, I don't think I'd want to be necessarily doing a difficult fight scene. Nice choreography by um, Tong Kai and Yun Chung Yan. A little bit of uh, camera trickery there, running the film backwards to create the effect of Sima Chun leaping onto the roof of the uh, water mill, which uh, we, one suspects is the technique they use for the dragon missiles every time uh, Sima Chun throws the dragon missile, catches the dragon missile, uh, just running the film backwards, slowly throwing it, and then he run, it, run the camera backwards so it looks like he's catching it. Uh, it's interesting to sort of consider the level, uh, the, the changing manner in which they staged this kind of stuff. Uh, early films like Burning of the Red Lotus Monastery would sort of hand draw on the flying daggers, uh, you know, frame by frame to create that effect. And then here, this is all physical effects, this isn't CGI, right? They've, they, they've put this on a wire and spun it through the air. There's another excellent decapitation there, that's a real doozy, that one. That's worthy of any Chambar, any um, Lone Wolf and Cub movie, that one. Uh, and it, and uh, picking up on that point about the way they filmed this, you can kind of see here the seeds of movies like The Heroic Trio and all the stuff that came out in the 1990s which were very heavy on physical effects. You know, Hong Kong filmmakers didn't embrace CGI uh, very quickly. I mean, now obviously with movies like the, the Flying Swords of Dragon Gate you get a lot more CGI, which is kind of disappointing because they were so good at the physical effects stuff. You know, the physical effects here, again, this is a movie that was fairly much dashed into production you know, it still looks good. The the dragon missile uh, look convincing. You believe that he's throwing these 
and they're flying through the air. Although I think they do repeat the shot of, of the dragon missiles uh, slicing through the branches of the tree more than once. Oh, and now we get another look at this magical herb that's going to save Lord Jin, and we return to our first hero, uh, who now has changed costume. And that is significant because she looks now like a martial arts heroine. She looks an awful lot, really, like Cheng Pei Pei's character, Golden Swallow. Uh, she, you know, to the extent that she has the same weapons and the same fighting style, using those two, two daggers simultaneously. So we know she's she means business now that she's gotten changed out of her work clothes, and uh, uh, Tan Siu Li joins uh, Tony Liu's character, and they set out on the road to vengeance, trying to chase down Sima Chun. It's, I mean, that's, you can't get a more sort of classic Kung Fu movie setup than that, can you really? Sima Chun killed both their parents. <laughs> he killed, he killed uh, you know, Erlong's mother and uh, Siuli's father, so they've got to take vengeance, right? They can't just sit at home and feel sorry for themselves. They've got to go out and, and make sure the debt is paid in, in blood. Nancy Yen sort of popped up in quite a few Kung Fu movies of this period. She was in um, uh, the Death Death Duel by uh, Choi Yun, as well as Clans of Intrigue, um, Born Invincible, uh, The Flying Guillotine Part Two, The Idiot Swordsman. So she was a pretty regular Kung Fu movie performer. Uh, I think her last film would have been uh, 1982, uh, after which she retired. In the film industry. Oh, now we get the tragedy of Erlong finding his beheaded mother, which really is going to make him less than pleased. He's got to go find his enemy now. It's all gotten very personal. If you look carefully in this scene, the the the, the sky but outside the watermill is, is a backdrop, it's not actually the actual sky. Now we cut to the scene of uh, Erlang burying his mother, uh, and they are, are actually outdoors and that's natural light. It's interesting, of course, this reinforces the point about Erlang being a good man, and that even though he's just devastated by his mother's death and he has to set out on this mission of vengeance, he takes the time to give her a proper burial. So again, he's showing this Confucian notion of propriety, of doing what needs to be done. Now we cut to the inn where the hired killers are staying, and we're once again back in a Shaw Brothers studio lot. Is it my imagination does this, this look remarkably like the inn from Come Drink With Me? So we get to spend a little time with the hired killers now, and to learn a bit more about their characters. They're not drawn in a great deal of detail. Each one is almost sort of defined by their gimmick or, or weapon, but they add, you know, a good deal of colourful uh, personality to the story. Quite helpfully, the killers have all been colour coded. So we've got uh, Norman Norman Choi in the green and black. That's Wang Han Cheng. 
in purple we've got Terry Lau uh, in the green uh, sorry uh, in the gray that's Kong Ying and then in the brown is Ko Hung so we've got a whole squad almost like Power Rangers here everyone's got their own signature color uh, again you can see the Shaw Brothers resources coming into play you need a rainstorm they got a rainstorm for you you need a elaborate in here's the here's the in you know ready to go these kind of locations would pop up again and again in these movies throughout the 1970s until Shaw's wrapped up uh, movie production I like this device of um, uh, Sima Jun swapping out the uh, rare root medicine just for a common vegetable. It's a nice little touch. So now it's night time and it's going to be shenanigans from the hired killers. That's Fan Mei Sheng there in the blue as Mu Fei. Uh, and, um, and in the gray that's uh, Kong Ying, another guy who just pops up again and again and again in Hong Kong cinema of this period. He's, uh, his signature weapon in this movie is the three-sectional staff, but he's a guy who has something like uh, over 90 films to his credit, usually small supporting roles, you know, he wasn't a leading man. See my Jun's hanging out in his bedroom, looking all mean and moody, fully aware that they're all plotting again him. Here we got, uh, about the end of the room is, uh, the character played by Wang Hanchen, who again is, is, it's all sort of layering the plot up here. Everybody's sneaky and got their own agenda and trying to play everybody else. Uh, Wang Hanchen, the actor, something like 200 films to his credit. Again, not a leading man, usually supporting roles, like this conniving sneak that he plays here as the hired assassin's plot to snatch the valuable medicine away from Sima Jin so they can curry favor with Lord Jin. As far as I'm aware, uh, Wang Hanchen's last movie would be uh, The Scorpion, uh, The Scorpion King, or Operation Scorpio, which came out in 1992, starring uh, Chin Kalok and Lao Leung. Aware of them having been anything else after that. I don't know quite why they had uh, Lole take his shirt off for this scene. He doesn't quite have the sort of um, rippling physique of, of Bruce Lee or even like Chen Quan Tai at this period. But of course, Lo had been a, a star before the rise of Bruce Lee with um, King Boxer, Five Fingers of Death. That was a hugely successful Kung Fu movie uh, when it came out in 1972. Apparently, uh, at one point uh, in 1973, there were over 1,000 copies of King Boxer in circulation. It was that popular in Southeast Asia. Uh, Lole's comes from a family originally from the Canton region, although he was born in Indonesia. Uh, the family moved to Hong Kong when Lole was in his teens, and he joined the Shaw Brothers acting program. 
I mean, much of his career, though, was spent playing bad guys. He occasionally played the hero, as in King Boxer, Five Fingers of Death, but more commonly used as a villain, uh, notably in The Chinese Boxer, uh, opposite Jimmy Wang Yu. Uh, now, that movie is a uh, sort of knockoff in many respects of Akira Kurosawa's first film, Senshiro Sagata, and it just sort of flips it around. Uh, Senshiro Sagata is about a judo practitioner taking on um, a, a rival jiu-jitsu master, um, and uh, the Chinese boxer flips it around so it's a kung fu fighter taking on a karate master, but the plots of uh, very similar, and in particular the appearance of Wang Yu's villain in that film seems modeled on the appearance of the villain of uh, Senshiro Sagata, and, and uh, Lole gets to wear a, a magnificent wig in that film that is worth the price of admission alone. Uh, Lole even uh, had a go at breaking in to the Western market uh, in Blood Money, which is a very early example of a sort of Kung Fu Western. Kung Fu meets Western. Uh, I think it came out in 1975, thereabouts, uh, starring Lole and Lee Van Cleef. It's, it's not the most successful meeting of Kung Fu movie and Western you'll ever find, but it's a, worth, worth a look if you're a Lole fan and curious about his career and what could have been. Obviously it wasn't a huge success because it didn't lead to a lot of work for Lowe in, in Hollywood. He came back to Hong Kong very shortly thereafter. Um, he, he, he would uh, direct himself in Clan of the White Lotus, or Fist of the White Lotus, which had Lao Gaoleng as the martial arts instructor. Um, I l love how uh, sh this ca uh, character sneaks up on Lole here by sort of hopping about the room get a little burst of kung fu, which is very nice. And uh, the fight is accompanied by this, these very dramatic bursts of what I guess is meant to be lightning, though it's rather blue, in, in the background, which really sort of adds to the energy of the fight scene, in addition to all these cool uh, flips and throws that they're doing. It's very acrobatic. And then... Uh, they run outside despite all the flashes of lightning. It doesn't actually seem to be raining. And she's over the wall in a way. Not going to catch her today, buddy. And it's back to the inn for more intrigue as everybody tries to get their hands on what they think is the medicine for Lord Chin. Nice dramatic reveal there with the curtain being swept aside. And there's no honor among thieves at all in this in this movie. Everybody's out for themselves. Nice little drop there by the stunt double who does that jump off of the first floor balcony. It's amazing to think that they were doing this stuff without without wires. I mean, there was clearly no wire in that scene. They could do just drop down from the first floor to the ground. We get a little bit of a fight scene here. And back to the flashes of lightning, though. Again, as we saw a moment ago, it's not raining outside. Those are rather more for dramatic effect than any sort of sense of verisimilitude.
um, action choreographer Yun Ching Yan may not be as famous as his brother Yun Wo Ping, but he really has some great movies to his his credit. His first film as a martial arts director was uh, The Flying Dragon Dagger, which I think was 1965. But uh, apart from that, he's worked on some absolute corkers like uh, Once Upon a Time in China with Choi Hark, 1991, Tiger Cage 2, which was directed by Yun Wu Ping and starred Donnie Yen, uh, Dreadnought, which uh, featured um, Sammo Hung, and of course Quan Tak Hing, the legendary actor who made uh, his name playing Wong Fei Hung. And then and, uh, on top of those, Yun Chun Yang worked on other films including Mike, Mighty Peking Man and Oily Maniac, both for uh, director Ho Meng Hua, that's the director of this movie. Nancy Yen uh, returns again as uh, Tan Siu Li, uh, heroine of the day. And we're going to finally get to see her really in action for the first time. As she runs up against one of the hired killers, who foolishly tries to get a bit grabby with her. And uh, if recent events in the cinema industry have told us anything, it's that you don't get grabby with the ladies. Particularly not if they're handy with a pair of daggers, as Ko Hung's character is about to find out here, as he's given himself away by having that little snuff bottle that belonged to her da. The, the martial arts heroine has, a, has again, has another long uh, lineage dating back to the ver some of the very earliest uh, martial arts films that would have been shot in China before the industry sort of really relocated to Hong Kong uh, in the wake of the um, communist coming to power. This is a cracking little fight scene. It's, it's almost over before it's begun, but it's very nicely executed by both performers. You can find um, swordswomen in Chinese cinema dating back uh, as early as 1926 in a film called The Nameless Hero starring Xuan uh, uh, Jingling uh, as a swordswoman. So this uh, character here played by Nancy Yen whilst obviously modeled on Cheng Pei Pei as Golden Swallow she's still part of a much wider history of, of martial arts heroines uh, that's very unique to Chinese cinema. You really can't find anything else like this, for example, in, in the Japanese Chambara film, where, where female swordswomen are few and far between, particularly you know, in the 1960s and 1970s. You get some later with films like um, Izumi, but those are the exception rather than the rule. Cracking a little bit of action here, as uh, Tony Liu mixes it up with low lay and uh, to keep a bit of variety we get another new weapon being introduced in, in the form of these uh, metal hoops that uh, Tony Liu's character wheels here. I'm not quite sure what if these are based on anything <laughs> in, in real life. It kind of looks like he's attacking him with a pair of slinkies but uh, you know I'm not Commit the dragon missiles based on anything remotely 
real either. It's all just about what looks good on the screen, isn't it? And the filmmakers trying to come up with new ideas that would keep audiences entertained. You can't just sort of keep repeating the same uh, action choreography and the same styles and weapons all the time. Audiences will stay home, which is the last thing they wanted. Now uh, Nancy Yen joins the fight, so it's two against one. Of course, the, they never both attack him at exactly the same time because that just wouldn't be the done thing, and then of course the fight would be over before before you knew it. And these things need to be played out to get maximum entertainment out of them. A little stunt double there for the backflips for Lole, but it, again, you have to. Uh, admire the skill of Tong Kai and Yun Chung Yan in choreographing these fight scenes. They probably didn't have very long to film these at all, but uh, they look great. You know, these, these performers, uh, you know, would have done this stuff many times before in, uh, for different directors and different action choreographers. So they knew how to shoot these fight scenes. They were all old hands at this stuff by this point, really. I think. Little one in, little example of running the camera backwards there as Lowly leaps up under that rock. It's a nice special effects again as the dragon missile makes things explode. Not quite sure why that would happen, but it looks cool. One minute Lowly, Lowly's character, see much in is above them. The next he's far below. Uh, continuity is not the film's strongest element. Now we get uh, the two female characters joining up with Tony Liu's hero to hunt Sima Chun. Um, the Dragon Missile is uh, beautifully shot, I would say, even if it's not the biggest uh, production of the era. The cinematographer on the film was um, Chao Hoi Chi, um, who'd already worked with uh, director Ho Meng Hua on film, well, films like Black Magic, and then worked with him again on Oi Maniac and The Mighty Peking Man. After that, he went on to work with um, Chang Che. He shot The Chinatown Kid, starring Fu Sheng, um, and then worked on films with a, a group known as The Venoms Mob, uh, including uh, the Five Venoms, Ten Tigers of Quentin, and The Daredevils. He worked with Ringo Lam on Prison on Fire, starring Chow Yun-Fat, and did some stuff with Jackie Chan, working on Armor of God, and was one of the cameramen on Miracles, or Mr. Canton and Lady Rose, as it's sometimes known, and was even one of the cinematographers on As Tears Go By for Wong Kar Wai. Uh, here we've just gotten a nice uh, shot of... Uh, a limb being severed, which could have come straight from a Japanese Chanbara film of this of this time in the mid 1970s. Although it's a little less bloody, it's not. If this was a Chanbara, that severed limb would be spurting blood like a hose pipe on or, or sprinkler. Uh, I like the. There's a, again, the continuity is not this film's strongest asset. Uh, one moment there are under bright, clear blue skies, and the next it's it's instantly raining. And, and 
So like, where did that come from? Here, we, the the, uh, the six high killers are being whittled down slowly but steadily. Here we've got uh, Kong Yun and uh, Fan Mei Sheng uh, waiting for Lulei's anti-hero to arrive and take refuge from this uh, rainstorm. Uh, Kong Yun's character, he uses the uh, three-sectional staff, uh, which is a traditional Chinese Kung Fu weapon. Um, I think my, my favorite example of that on screen would probably be in the 36th Chamber of Shaolin, um, which is definitely worth a look. Or perhaps um, Shaolin Challenges Ninja, it's both films from Lao Ga Lun and starring Lao Ga Fai. There's excellent uh, choreography featuring the three-sectional staff in both of those films, if you want to check them out to see it in action again. Trying to sneak up here on him. Look out behind you, buddy. You can also find online, if you go on YouTube, you can find Shek uh, Kien, um, uh, 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 the actor who played Mr. Han in Enter the Dragon, performing a three-sectional staff form on Hong Kong television, which is uh, an interesting little tidbit. If you want to <laughs> spend some time on YouTube trying to find that. Again, there's a little bit of contrivance at play in, in this plot. They, you know, whenever they get the drop on Sima Chen, nobody ever actually kills him. They, he's always given the opportunity to uh, escape and, and live another day, live to fight another day. He's outsmarting his um, fellow killers with, by burning the root that we know is actually what makes the medicine work rather than destroying it. They don't know that and they're all bent out of shape about it. I love the fact that he just has to pull out the dragon missile and they back off. It's not quite clear how it could work in a confined space like that. How is he going to throw it inside that little um, temple there without it just crashing into the walls? But, you know, you don't ask too many questions or you're going to spoil the fun. I think the, the, the worst instance of, of Sima Chun being let off the hook in the film is that previous scene where he's lassoed by Norman Choi's character, who then grabs the the root and, and, and runs off with, without finishing Sima Chun off. The dude tied up and and and, um, and vulnerable, unable to fight back. Norman Choi's character has a sword in his hand. What does he do? He just doesn't finish him off. Runs away. Which lets See much and you know escape the rope and then finish him off with the dragon missiles. It's a bad mistake. Make sure that they're not just down, but that they're down and out, or they'll come back to bite you in the butt. I think that was the the fourth decapitation we've seen so far in the movie. So it's not as heavy on people getting their heads lopped off as the flying guillotine. The film takes a sort of um, uh, interesting angle 
on the character of, of Miss Shah, the character played by uh, Terry Lau, because you know she teams up with with the two good guys, but she never quite get to be never quite gets to be one of the heroes. I mean, she's got this sneaky hidden weapon with with this, uh, these nails that shoot out of her <laughs> out of her hand to to impale people. Um, and and we'll see later that she's definitely not uh, a particularly virtuous character. She's someone willing to do whatever it takes to get get the job done. So I'm maybe getting ahead of myself slightly there. See, my chin's being very careful with the burnt embers of uh, the medicine because that's what he needs to save his boss. And, uh, and his boss seems like the sort of fellow who doesn't tolerate failure very well at all. Uh, now we catch up with two of the remaining members of the gang of original gang of six uh, who are going to uh, prove their credentials as villains in this scene as they uh, molest um, uh, the fisherman and his daughter. Uh, the daughter in this case is played by uh, Chan Mei Hua an actress who had a short career just spanning uh, 1972 to 1978. But uh, the fisherman, her father, is played by uh, Lei Sao-Kei, who had a very long um, career with over 350 movie credits. Um, he uh, started acting in, in cinema in 1951, uh, and passed away in, in 2004. Uh, funnily enough, uh, Lei Sao-Kei was in um, the Six-Fingered Lord of the Lute, uh, the movie adapted from the novel by Ni Quang. So that's another little uh, way everything ties together in uh, uh, Chinese cinema. Uh, nice little bit of action here as, as um, Siu Li comes to the rescue of the fisherman's daughter. I'm not sure the character has a name. I think she's just the, the fisherman's daughter in the credits. Forcing the two um, villains into a hasty retreat. In addition to his acting career, uh, Lee Sao Kei was a, also a screenwriter and uh, a director for a little while in the I think 1950s and maybe early 60s, though n not anything uh, particularly well known at all. I haven't actually seen any of the films that he's credited as a director on. But he was obviously uh, a busy guy. Uh, as a writer, he has something like 40-odd uh, films to his credit. So he was right in the heart of uh, Chinese cinema for quite a while, I guess, even if he was never a big name. Uh, nice uh, Shaw Brothers set again here. All the period trimmings you could ask for as they go as the two... Uh, Heroes, or one hero and one sort of semi-villain hero, in the form of Miss Shah, go hunting for Sima Chun. I love how uh, easily Sima Chun is is led astray here. There's a definitely a, a, a moral ambiguity about Miss Shah's character. Uh, she's willing to do anything to get this. Uh, to catch Sima Chun, uh, as, as we're about to find out, as she effortlessly seduces him, 
Uh, talk about not playing hard to get by Sima Jun here. The minute she so much as shows the slightest interest in him, he's like, "Hey, let's uh, let's get out of here." So uh, he's obviously not an upstanding uh, example of of moral virtue, is he? One theme that often pops up in the uh, Wong Fei Hung film starring Quan Tak King is this idea of of Wu Dei or martial virtue that the martial arts are not just a, a means for strength or self-defense, but a way to improve your character through hard work. Uh, that's not something we can find here in the character of Sima Jun. He might be a super dangerous martial artist, but he's obviously completely unscrupulous. Uh, Miss Shah merely has to give him a wink and uh, he's ready to take her to the nearest Love Hotel. Here's um, uh, Erlong with his slinkies wrapped around his upper arms, which is very fetching. Uh, this is uh, Sima Chun may be a marvelous uh, tough guy, but he seems to be something of a disappointment in the boudoir department because he's just gone in to the hotel with Miss Shah, leaving uh, 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 Siu Li and uh, Erlang to have a little bit of a discussion outside about what to do next. But uh, Miss Shah and <laughs> Sima Chen are in there for not even like 30 seconds and he's he's done. He's finished, he's passed out, he's, he's, he's had a good time for for 20 seconds and that's the end of Sima Chen. His dragon missile has obviously fired a little early, and he's conked out. <laughs> little uh, broad humor there, as the innocent Suli has no idea what's going on in this house of ill repute. Again, here's one of those moments where you just think, you know, Sima Chen is out cold in his post-coital bliss. Why doesn't Miss Sha simply? Uh, kill him while he's asleep. Instead she goes rummaging around through his belongings. You could just polish him off and then they wouldn't have to worry about him anymore. There's a quick look under the blanket there. What's under there? Nothing of any interest to anyone. Clearly. We already realized what a disappointment he is in this uh, field of endeavor. Uh, she wakes up and is instantly back to fighting fitness. Forcing her to make a hasty exit. Her reputation, let's be honest, somewhat tarnished by this whole sorry encounter. Still having had that all too brief um, moment of uh, gratuitous nudity, it's time for a little bit of Kung Fu again and some quality acrobatics and martial arts choreography. Oh, out comes the dragon missile, and suddenly nobody's quite so keen on scrapping anymore. Again, quite how it would work in a, an enclosed space like this uh, street is not clear, but nobody wants to find out. And then suddenly we've gone from uh, a bustling town center to the edge of the ocean, it seems. I'm not quite sure how we got here so quickly, but here we are. Uh, Ching Xu Tung's 1983 film, Duel to the Death, features a spectacular sword fight uh, atop a cliff. This is a little more 
modest in, in scale and ambition, and that really they're sort of running amongst the rocks down by the uh, edge of the ocean. It kind of been easy to, to shoot a fight scene at this location, because you've got soggy sand to move about on, and lots, lots of rocks to trip over. But that doesn't stop stop them putting on a nice little exhibition here, as they try to finish off the uh, indefatigable and Sima uh, Chun. I love how uh, Loli does this fl flip and lands on this rock in the midst of the waves. This must have been a very soggy day for, for the cast and crew. And then he jumps into the ocean and, and swims away to escape from them. Uh, but when he climbs out of the waves here, I mean, those waves look like they're pretty fierce. You definitely get the sense of, uh, when you cut in closer, zoom in closer here, on Lele, that that wasn't the easiest shot he's ever done in his life. <laughs> he looks like a little winded from trying to swim in that rough water. Conveniently, there is a horse close at hand, having escaped the waves for him to make another getaway. And so, having hopped on a horse, see much when finally comes back to where this all started, and the uh, bedchamber of the ailing Lord Chin, who looks, let's face it, like he's not doing so great. He's got a very funny color. Having escaped his pursuers by leaping into the water, uh, Sima Chin probably thought he was being terribly clever. We're about to find out that he's not as clever as he thinks. And a fun little uh, twist in the tale. Although, I mean, it's been heavily telegraphed with that uh, scene early on in which the uh, doctor warns them not to get the medicine wet under any circumstances. Quite how it's to be taken. It's never really explained, is it? If it's meant to be sort of set fire to and then consumed, what do you do? You, you snort it up your nose? Here's the big denouement. Oh no, it's all soggy and wet. It's ruined. And despite all that Sima Jun has been through, having had to kill a whole bunch of folks, he's decapitated four or five people so far, uh, and fight for his life, and swim through a raging sea and ride a horse. He gets no thanks for his efforts from Lord Chin, who's just all bent out of shape that he's going to die from the hundred birds worshipping the phoenix that's growing on his back. Some people can't please. However, the uh, in great, Lord Chin promptly orders Sima Chin killed. And now we really get to see uh, a whole bunch of Shaw Brothers extras come out to have a tangle with Sima Chin, who was uh, forced to fight his boss's legion of minions. Great choreography here. All this is done in long, continuous takes. You know, it's not like modern fight scenes where there's everything's built in the edit. These are long, continuous shots as the performers go through numerous different movements uh, and have to be aware of one another 
and making sure they're not injuring one another as they do this stuff. This is, you know, quite an art to film these kind of fight scenes without anybody getting hurt. And keeping the, the pace and the intensity there. It seems to be a lost art nowadays. All So many fight scenes you see now are built just in the editing room with very sort of uh, intrusive cuts and shaky handheld camera work to hide the fact that nobody really knows what they're doing. You, this is much more in keeping with the films of Chang Chair, who really sort of was a pioneer of this style of using long takes, having the camera follow the performers as they move through a location in the midst of combat. Um, and obviously credit must be given to the choreographers, uh, Tong Kai and Yun, Yun Cheng Yan. This, you know, this, this is terrific stuff, very typical of this period of Shaw Brothers. Once again, even though faced with what looked like certain death, Sima Chun manages to make his escape from the palace of Lord Chin, and out come the dragon missiles again. And no matter what the heroes try to throw up to stop the dragon missiles, it all gets sliced in two. What we're going to see coming up again is this sort of um, amoral angle to the story in which um, it doesn't matter sort of whose side you're supposed to be on, uh, the enemy of, of uh, my enemy is my friend. So we get these two reprobates here um, who will join forces or at least temporarily align themselves with the heroes to try to bring down Sima Chun. And, you know, these characters we know are completely corrupt and despicable, having tried to assault the fisherman's daughter in that earlier scene. But, uh, you know, the main villain here is Sima Chun, so everybody's got to sort of team up and go take care of him. It's far less clear-cut than, like, um, the Shaolin films coming out of Shaw Brothers at this period in which the Shaolin heroes are the good guys and the, the villains who are invariably Manchurian are the, uh, uh, you know, are pure evil. Um, and, and there's never a gray area in those films. You know who's, who's good because the heroes are Shaolin fighters who use the Hung Kyun style and the villains are Manchurians who do not. Um, but here you've got sort of degrees of villains, really. You've got uh, Sima Chun, who's the principal villain, of the tale, but equally there's you know Lord Chin who's completely m malevolent, the six hired killers who you know uh, are blood on their hands and no moral fiber to speak of. The only two that we can look at really and admire uh, are Su Li and Erlong, and they're on a mission of vengeance to try to track down the man who murdered. Their, pa you know, their parents. Here's a fortuitous meeting, a little serendipity as they run into Miss Shah again. No one's judging her too harshly for her little dalliance with Sima Chun, even though the stain on her reputation won't be coming out in the wash. 
One camera trick you see a lot of in Shaw Brothers films of this time, uh, or indeed Hong Kong films of this time, it was, having, it was common at Golden Harvest too, is the use of zooms. Um, I think the simple reason for that is is that it was a cheap way of adding some movement to a shot. Uh, didn't involve necessarily setting up a dolly track. You didn't really have steady cams uh, at this point in, in cinema. If you wanted to move the camera, you had to take the time to put a dolly track down and, and move it that way. So it's cheaper and faster just to use a zoom lens. And they became really a signature part of the Shaw Brothers style, particularly the crash zoom when the camera dramatically leaps in to a close-up from a wide shot. Um, here it's used somewhat more moderately, in a, just to emphasize the uh, depth of thought of Earl Long as he watches these fishermen casting their nets. This is there we go. There was a nice crash zoom there just as he has his moment of realization that this may be the key to finally defeating the dreaded dragon missiles. It's a, you can kind of see these kind of devices used in a lot of kung fu movies when the hero will see something and it then helps them invent a new technique or style that will be used to defeat the villain. Obviously, Lao Ga Leung's um, Shaolin Mantis, or the Deadly Mantis, is a good example of that, in which the hero, uh, played by David Chang, watches, um, or John Chang, as he's sometimes credited now, watches a, a praying mantis in action, and then uses that to come up with praying mantis kung fu. This is a little less involved than that. It's not the creation of a new kung fu style. It's just like, oh, hey, we could use a net to catch those um, dragon missiles and finally neutralize Sima Chun's deadliest weapon. Here he is, Sima Chun, on the run. He's quickly grown a little stubble. Looks a little untidy as he's fleeing all the forces of Lord Jin that are out to get him, all because he happened to get the medicine wet on the way home. And he should have been more careful. How the mighty have fallen for Sima Chun. He hasn't got his fancy white robes anymore. He's trying to pass himself off as a, as a commoner uh, as he tries to make his escape from Lord Jin's clutches. He's forced to hang out in a dingy storeroom full of old wine caskets, or wine jugs, perhaps. One of the su slightly surprising things about Lole's career is that he was never sort of lumbered with a, an English uh, screen name, as happened to a lot of his contemporaries in the 1970s, when Western distributors wanted to make their films more appealing to English-speaking audiences. You know, that's when you had Lao Ga Fai become Gordon Lau or Gordon Liu, uh, and this habit carried on into the 1980s even, when I remember the, the Japanese actress who worked in Hong Kong, Yukari Oshima, was, uh, used the English name Cynthia Luster for 
for Western releases of her films. Uh, but Lole, even when Five Fingers of Death was, uh, was released in the West, was always discredited with his own name. I'm always slightly surprised they never tried to call him like Larry Lowe or Bruce Lowe or something to try to cash in on the appeal of Western names to audiences not familiar with Chinese ones. Oh, now we've got the good guys working on their nets to try to nullify the threat of the dreaded dragon missiles. It's uh, perhaps not as cool as watching like a nice training montage when, when the heroes learn some new kung fu form or invent a new kung fu form. Instead, they're basically knitting a giant net. But you got to do what you got to do if you don't want to get decapitated. Having noted the, the similarity between the character of uh, Siu Li and Golden Swallow, Cheng Pepe's character from Come Drink With Me, um, it's perhaps worth mentioning that uh, the director Ho Menghua worked with Cheng Pepe uh, on the film Lady of Steel in, in 1970, so five years before before this one. So uh, he, he had experience you know, working directly with one of the leading martial arts actresses of this era. And perhaps that partly inspired the appearance of uh, the Siu Li character in this film. Uh, director Ho Minghua was a quite a versatile guy. He didn't just do martial arts films. He did, uh, you know, sort of horror, schlock exploitation stuff like you know, Black Magic, and the Oily Maniac, and of course what we mentioned earlier, the Mighty Peking Man, which is a marvelous Hong Kong take on uh, King Kong with a uh, giant ape running amok. Um, go check it out. Great fun. Great. Uh, Saturday night popcorn movie. Lo Lei's career was uh, one that was able to survive the sort of decline of kung fu movies in the uh, early 1980s. I think perhaps in part because he was so often cast as bad guys, he would simply made the switch from playing kung fu villains to playing like, gangsters and triad bosses, uh, and he was able to keep acting throughout the 80s and 90s, eventually sort of retiring in the early 2000s. I think his last film probably have been maybe Glass Tears in 2001. Uh, so that was a heck of a good good run. A lot of Kung Fu stars struggled with after the decline of Kung Fu cinema, um, when it sort of fell out of fashion a little bit and everything suddenly became very contemporary uh, with films like Project A and Winners and Sinners and Meals on Wheels and then the modern day gangster movies of John Woo and Ringo Lam. Suddenly people weren't quite so interested in, you know, these kind of period pieces and, and kung fu movies. And then of course you had the the new wave of, of Wu Sha swordplay movies in the nineteen nineties, heralded really by Once Upon a Time in China and, and Swordsman. Um, but that's from a different sort of stream of martial arts cinema than these kung fu movies like the Dragon Missile, which don't 
don't sort of spring from that same literary tradition as the wuxia films uh, that both predated the kung fu boom of the 70s and then uh, informed the, the new wave uh, wuxia movies of the 1990s. We're back uh, back to to the edge of the ocean here, as uh, Sima Chun tries to complete his escape, but he doesn't know that there's trouble waiting for him. Oh, he's just discovered that it's a trap. Uh, and again, we've got this whole thing where even though that we know that the uh, the characters chasing Sima Chun are, are n no good themselves, the fact that he's sort of the worst of the worst positions them oddly on the side of the angels. And now the good guys spring their carefully planned trap uh, in the hopes of finally putting an end to Sima Chun and his reign of head-removing terror. Uh, just a little uh, advance warning that this movie has a typical Shaw Brothers abrupt ending. Uh, this, was, this was something that you find in the films of, of Chang Che and of Lao Ga Leung, as well as in films like this. When once the villain is defeated, the movie's over. There's no sort of epilogue. There's no sort of, and they all lived happily ever after. It's literally, once the villain is, is dead, that's it. Uh, you know, freeze frame, uh, cut, to, cut to black, everybody go home. Because because once the villain is dead, as far as these filmmakers are concerned, that's it. There's, there's no story left to tell. We don't need to know what happens to these people once uh, vengeance has been served. Great shots of the flying guillotines in action. Presumably those are on wires, but they've done a good job of hiding them. It's not obvious you know, how they're doing these sequences as he keeps the dragon missiles skimming through the air and forces everybody to take cover. Oh, oh, poor... Poor Fan Mei Sheng just met his unhappy demise there. Victim, another victim of the dreaded dragon missiles. But the heroes remain unbowed, determined to see him brought justice. Sima Jun brought to justice here. He's not scared though because he's got his deadly razor sharp magical boomerangs. There we go, the heroes spring their trap with the aid of some off-screen trampolines. And we're ready at last for the final showdown. I love the fact that the fisherman and, and his daughter are there for this scene. Um, I mean, they don't have any beef with Sima Jin, but I guess it lends a sense of continuity to the to the story that the, the people who inspired the net idea are there when it's finally deployed. We've mentioned how prolific both uh, the screenwriter Ni Kuang and some of the actors in this film uh, were of the course of their careers. None of them can hold a candle to Chiang Sing Lung, who edited the film. He has over 600 movies to his credit, covering the period 1947 to 1990, including such classics as Legendary Weapons of China for Lao Ga Leung, 
Five Element Ninjas for Chang Chia, My Young Auntie, also for Lao Ga Leung, um, and Heroes of the East, and Shaolin Mantis as well. Classic Kung Fu movies, all of those. He does great work here. These fight scenes, uh, you know, have energy and momentum, and, you know, he does a good job of hiding however it is they're setting these dragon missiles in motion. It all flows together smoothly. He did a great job. We're coming up to the end of the movie now as they're preparing to finally make these nets work the way they're supposed to to catch the dragon missiles. So having forewarned you, things are going to come to an abrupt halt once, once vengeance is served. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the dragon missile. There's a lot more from Ho Ming Hua in the 88 Films collection, including The Oily Maniac, uh, The Mighty Peking Man. Um, and they also have, of course, uh, One-Armed Swordsman with Wang Yu, which is definitely worth checking out, and the original movie that started this whole trend, The Flying Guillotine. So if you want some more uh, Kung Fu classics and Hong Kong classics from the vault, maybe give those a look. And there he is. Down and out. Finally, Sima Chun has been defeated. That's the end of the movie. Thank you so much. I hope to see you next time here with 88 Films.